It's the 28th of February, 2015, and this is episode 191. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. We've got a really fun guest who's joined us before. I think this may even be one of the most frequent guest hosts on Let's Talk Bitcoin. He's been on a couple of times. Of course, we're talking about Jeffrey Tucker. I'm very excited to be joined by you today, Jeffrey. Thank you so much for coming on and welcome back to Let's Talk Bitcoin. Yay, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's me and Andreas here today. Adam's here too. He's going to hang back a little bit. Andreas is with you like he's there right now? We were going to do that, actually. We're going to record in the same room, but it didn't work out. So (laughs) we're in we're remote. (laughs) We're all in different locations. And actually, where are you coming from today, Jeff? I'm speaking to you from a very, very cold Auburn, Alabama. What's cold for Auburn, Alabama? (sighs) I don't know. I was just in a restaurant. I had to put my gloves on, you know, while I was in the restaurant. That's how that's how cold it was. So this is not fit for for human beings, really. I need to move further south. That's the only answer. A few million people in Boston are currently shaking their fists at you, Jeffrey, for saying that. <laughs> well, you better get to New Hampshire where it's even colder, which you, where you're going to be the, the week after we're recording this, actually, at the uh, New Hampshire I'm, Liberty oh, Forum. You know, I, I imagine myself sometimes living in the, in the north in these strange places like Wisconsin or something. And I just don't know. I think I would just have a, a big fireplace and just and a gigantic blankets and... I would also invest very heavily in things like large uh, woolen rugs and, and just cover myself completely for about five months of the year. That's the only way I could possibly That's pretty survive. much what I do. Get the onesies. <laughs> Get the onesies. <laughs> Break you know, out the onesies. Also, I don't know if, if you like fur, but I've recently got very interested in the fur markets. You know, the prices have just fallen dramatically over the last 20 years. Because I used to sell fur when I was in, in college, and it's amazing to me. These are mink, mink coats and, and beautiful uh, foxes and things. They were only available to the rich in the old days. Now, uh, with the growth of technology and, and globalization, division of labor, and the possibility of you know anybody raising these these dumb animals, fur prices have fallen, They've plummeted really. So now they're available to like all classes. There's a lot more synthetic fur now too, right? Well, there is, but I, I really look forward to the day where you know every member of the working class. Walking around in a mink coat, I think I think that would just be a great sort of commandments to the elites who imagine they would rule the world forever. You just like it because it's politically incorrect to have fur. You know, I don't fur. Fur, I think it's I think it's very beautiful. I love it when the masses are able to afford and adopt the the signs of status and wealth that used to belong only to the ruling class. To me, that's like a beautiful kind of upending of the world. That's what excites me most, you know, that sort of circulation of elites and, and the spreading of wealth among the masses of people. That's, I think, the most beautiful thing you could ever see in the world. And I think that may relate to Bitcoin, in fact, because Bitcoin's kind of doing that with money. I think that that's exactly what's happening. I, you know, I, I've just been doing a lot of research on history and things like this recently and, and understanding like the age of laissez-faire in the last quarter of the 19th century. This was the defining mark, you know, the creation of the middle class lengthening of lives, the plummeting of the infant mortality rate, you know, the massive growth of income among all classes, races, people all, all over the world. 
And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to see when you see it on paper, but what the statistics leave out is just how furious that made the ruling classes at the turn of the 20th century. They basically set out and they said, look, this has just got to stop. And they erected all these kind of gigantic structures that were designed to stand between us and people we want to trade with, you know? And that was the beginning of things like central banking and stock market regulation and income taxes. And I mean, you can go antitrust regulations and, you know, labor, labor law and all the rest of it, all designed to kind of create these gigantic third party intermediating trust institutions that were in a position to either approve or veto uh, trades that we want to make. So then you really have to kind of hurl yourself forward 100 years and see the invention of distributed networks, open source software and cryptography and all these beautiful things that are around us now. And we see a kind of a restoration. We're like, we're getting back on track to disintermediating the world and establishing peer-to-peer relationships again. That's sort of a beautiful poetry of history. You know, it's like the ruling class basically can't rule forever. They just, they, they can't. They try, but they can't. And speaking of elites, this is a great tie-in to something that you wanted to talk about, Jeff, which was the, <laughs> what I like to affectionately call the Bitcoin Bohemian Grove, yeah. <laughs> which was the meeting of the Satoshi Roundtable that recently took place in uh, Punta Cana, right? Tell me about that. I guess for our listeners who aren't familiar, everybody probably knows what it was, but basically it's organized by Bruce Fenton and he's running for the Bitcoin Foundation, right? which I have some thoughts about. I'm not exactly a fan of the Bitcoin Foundation or the whole idea of it, but he invited a bunch of people who he believes are, you know, movers and shakers in the Bitcoin world to a private island to kind of discuss what's going on in Bitcoin for a weekend. And I wasn't there. Of course, I didn't make the cut. I guess I wasn't on the A list, but <laughs> I, I didn't, uh, I didn't get invited to this. There was a lot of speculation about it online, a lot of critique, a lot of like, well, what are you doing having this? Are you trying to become the elites? Are you trying to pretend that you are the elites? I but, think there was a lot of pretending that we're elites, but everybody knows that Bitcoin is probably the first big and you know innovation sector in the history of, of economic development that, that does not and cannot have a ruling class associated with it. Yeah, there can be a lot of people that are pretending, but it's, it's a joke. This is a decentralized network and there's no such thing. So, no, we had, right. we had, fun. We had fun. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to hear, as I understand there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, Jeff, because you were actually there, but there was a lot of this attitude of, well, we just have to sort of, um, you know, get in bed with the regulators and sort of pretend that we're on their side and we're, we're going to go stealth and try to make Bitcoin more friendly to liberty or to the regular people or the masses. But we just I, have know, to sort of fly under the radar. Was I that know, your impression? Was, I had read that on the internet, you know, and, but I was actually there and I, you know, over three days, I don't remember hearing a single anything that sounded anything like that. So I don't know. Oh, well, that's a relief. So what was it like? Tell us about it. It was just fun. We we got, it was some of the biggest innovators and and amazing people in the space that are trying out new technologies and reporting on what they're doing. And they're being questioned by other people. They're They're talking about their commercial experience and, you know, what's worked and what hasn't worked and sharing technological tricks and tips and and talking about their VC funding and their customer base and some of the challenges they faced. And it was just a really friendly gathering of people with a lot of round tables. And spe- I gave a, a big speech that was probably the most sort of radical speech I've ever g- given in my life. And it was it was really well received. But yeah, what was it was that a, about? It was a, kind of like on this topic that I was, I was just describing to you. I, 
I talked about the, the rise of Leviathan and like why it came along as a way of putting a stop to the emergence of a peer-to-peer world in the late 19th century. And mm-hmm. talked about the, some very scary stuff, like, like the eugenics program in the, in the, in the U.S. and the U.K. And, and how that fit into sort of demographic and economic planning by the ruling class. I went into a number of details about about this and how it relates to central banking and and how Bitcoin is sort of uh, finding a way out of this of these frozen structures of regime control over into a new world. So I, you know, I spoke for like an hour and it was great and it was fun. So uh, the, hopefully the people there weren't taking that as like a blueprint for what how they can control people. <laughs> no, <laughs> but, I don't know. But, I had a strong sense of I didn't get any other impression other than pure sort of. Uh, laissez-faire. You know, no, but one of the problems Bitcoin's dealing with right now is that, you know, it's such a cool technology. And of course, uh, blockchain technology is, uh, you know, by itself just amazing. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of big shots that want to get their sink their teeth into it. And with uh, the level of, of funding that Bitcoin's getting these days, you know, calms a lot of people that are used to doing things the, the normal way, you know. So there's, yeah, there's going to be a lot of pressure to um, to so adhere what, regulations, but I didn't get the sense from any, and they were mostly everybody there was basically an entrepreneur of one sort or another. But but nobody actually welcomes this. I mean, people are into, people who are interested in, in Bitcoin are just kind of mostly radicals. I mean, the the Winklevoss trends were not there. You know, I mean, right. I mean this this is a group of of kind of this is not the establishment. They're all the radicals, the misfits, and the geeks and the weirdos. And now they're doing really cool things. So that was that was the vibe that I got from the meeting. Uh, very friendly and very warm, and and nobody was taken aback at my politics. And I think I think most everybody had shared them actually. That's comforting. But what yeah. was the point of it? What do you think was the goal of this meeting, and why invite all these people to give talks about sort of what they're doing in Bitcoin? I mean, what was the overarching you know, I goal? Think it was, I think it was the, the overarching thing was uh, was I would say number one social. In fact, there was a funny moment that I had because I had been I, I had been invited and I was I like to pretend that everything I do is work. Right. So that's just my default mode. Like somebody invites me somewhere like that's work. I'll do it because I have to work. So I was invited down to Punta Cana, Satoshi Roundtable. Well, I thought, well, it's work. It's part of my work. I'll go work. And um, then I was talking to Tony Galipi and I and in Miami, and I said, hey, Tony, am I going to see you at um, at in Punta Cana? And he, and he stepped back a step and there's a little bit of silence. He goes. I, what is with you people? He said, you know, I have a job. I have to like go to work and stuff. I can't just. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was kind of a scary moment for me because at, at that moment, it was like my illusions kind of, <laughs> kind of fell away. And I realized, yeah, I guess I'm kind of going to have a good time. <laughs> so that was, that was a large part of it really. But, um, but it's also really interesting to have, have time to spend with, with entrepreneurs in the space and see what they're working on, what's working, what's working, what's not working, you know, sort of brainstorm on um, the technologies of the future, you know, that sort of thing. But there was absolutely no sort of plotting in the, in the Jekyll Island sense uh, at all. Uh, I think it was just, it was more social than anything else. I, I, I think Bruce was, was sort of mischievous and sort of sending the signals out that, it, that this is the emergent Bohemian Grove of, of the crypto world, you know, um, I think that was, part, but he's, he's kind of a fun and funny guy. And I think a lot of that was, um, just sort of tongue in cheek, really. 
I'm not really that concerned about it. I just think it's kind of funny to like play up this conspiracy angle because some people really were very concerned about this. Like, there are going to be owl statues being worshipped and things like that. <laughs> I mean, I got a I, from the New York Times. You know, they wanted to know what we were plotting. I said we were plotting to leave the world alone. I mean. <laughs> I didn't know what else to say. I didn't really have any big, um, any. Uh, so would, would you say part of this was just like setting up this whole kind of Bitcoin Bilderberg type meeting? Was Is this just like trolling people? <laughs> That's probably a very good way to put it, really, uh, more than anything else, because uh, it, was, it was just purely social and purely fun. But, but actually, it was kind of work, actually, because we, we were in sessions a good part of the day for three solid days, and that's. That's a lot of that's a lot of time, and and for me, I'm not exactly a te- technician in this space. You know, I had to really like listen very carefully and took a, took a lot of notes, and you know, and actually, most of the talk concerned uh, blockchain technologies, uh, not so much Bitcoin as a currency. Whereas my primary interest up to now has been in in the sort of monetary and currency features of Bitcoin, but that that was definitely not top on the list of things that people were talking about, I would say. And I think partly that's a function of um, this situation of the price right now. So that's a big part of it. You know, the high-flying investment class has sort of sort of gone away. And then, the cl- of course, cloud mining and mining in general has been just completely devastated under this. What do you think about the status of Bitcoin mining nowadays? Obviously, there's some interesting economics in there. Mining has really changed, I guess, since I got into Bitcoin back in 2011. And I know that was you actually were at an event where the first Bitcoin ATM came out back in, I want to say it was early 2012 or something like that. And you, I you received that, be, that was too early because I, was it well, 2013? I think the first Bitcoin ATM I saw was February 2013. I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. So we're, well, we're now two years out from that, but even right. at that time, two years ago, it was basically, you know, not worth it or not profitable, not possible to mine Bitcoins with your computer. But if you go even further back, there were people literally, um, you know, mining Bitcoins with their computers. And now look at where we are. We've got these incredibly competitive firms that are just vying to increase the efficiency of their hardware. Uh, and uh, adding business, actually. I mean, you know, the collapse in prices just devastated the economics of, of mining. And, and as I understand it, a lot of what happened was that there is a very interesting relationship here between sort of macroeconomic business cycle forces and 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 bitcoin mining because people are so certain that the price is just going to go up and up and up so, so what they did is they used the low interest rate environment to invest really heavy and and massive capital equipment to make this mining possible basically getting over levered up you know and then when the price fell and the revenue wasn't what it was supposed to be they're suddenly stuck and you know they had to deleverage and and many of them went belly up so the mining industry is like, very much in trouble. It's like the shale oil business all over again only played out in Bitcoin. Yeah, that's really true. And it's a really interesting way in which the, the, the physical, the, the sort of corrupt physical, uh, centrally planned, centrally managed monetary regimes are colliding at some level with, uh, with the crypto, crypto world. It's a, a fascinating thing. I'm not one who regrets it, actually. I, I'm very happy right now with the way uh, the economics of Bitcoin are, are turning out. The high-flying days of, of a year ago, or a year and a half ago, were, were fun and full of activity. I like those days, too. But, you know, I'm kind of a supertarian when it comes to creative destruction. 
And uh, now with the price, you know, it's fallen as much as it has. So, you know, the sector's really been cleaned out of a lot of the hucksters. You know, there's been massive turnover in uh, the, the entrepreneurs that are involved in the space. And it really has been a kind of survival of the fittest uh, sort of world. Interestingly, if you look at the hash rate and uh, difficulty during this time, especially during the uh, two months drop from about 500 US dollars a coin to about 250, kind of the big having of reward. It was the dress rehearsal for the halving of 2016, unannounced dress rehearsal, unanticipated dress rehearsal of having reward. Yet the hashing power really only just plateaued for a bit and then continued to climb. And the difficulty dropped momentarily just for a couple of cycles and then started going up again. I was very interested in seeing if these new economics of mining would lead to either a great departure of uh, mining power from the network and even the possibility of uh, extra long block times, which was you know, one of the scenarios that is uh, really dangerous for Bitcoin. And yet we didn't see that. Um, in fact, we saw uh, the hash rate blip a bit lower and then recover quickly. Almost immediately after that, the difficulty started going up again. What'd you count for that? That's fascinating. I, I really have no way to account for it whatsoever. I've barely been able to account for why the price uh, declined in the, in the first place. So many unexpected things. And, and probably, Andreas, you feel the same way. It's like things are a lot clearer after they happen than before they happen. <laughs> well, when it comes to the markets and the, um, and the price, really, I, I don't think um, there's any validity to ex post facto analysis than there is to prediction. You can do all kinds of interesting correlations on a few variables. You could say, oh, Bitcoin went down because the, you know, the price of gold went up or the, the adoption went down or whatever. You can find all kinds of uh, signs in the stars and the weather to, to justify it. But it's true. It's true. None of it is really definitive. You know, a market incorporates a vast amount of information in the pricing. Yeah. But on the other hand, if you look at the hash rate and the difficulty... It's the dynamically adjusted macroeconomics of Bitcoin, the uh, currency velocity and issuance and the macroeconomics of that. And that's a very clear situation because it really has only three inputs, difficulty, price of electricity, and, um, and hash rate power. And so, you know, it's really interesting to look at that. I was expecting a lot more miners to find themselves in an unprofitable situation and turn off. And it seems that even if that was happening, the increase in investment that seems to be continuing at a frenetic pace in that space overcame the departures. Mm. So there was so many new market entry mm. um, or perhaps uh, increased investments by existing market players in, in more advanced hashing equipment that it completely obscured any departures from the market. It plateaued briefly and then went right back to climbing again. That's fascinating. I don't know. could be a technological effect. Yeah, it, it could just be better technology and better seeking out ever cheaper venues for, for electricity provision, you know, that sort of thing. I know that there's been a lot of sort of migration around the world on the part of the big mining companies. One of the things I like about you, Jeff, is that you're not afraid to say, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like when it comes to the price or mining. Yeah, well, not sure about that. And it's true because none of us really know. Right. <laughs> That's the whole you thing. Know, like, but you know, the price, you know, Andreas said something very interesting about the price. And 
If somebody were to ask me if you were if you're going to just settle on one reason for the for the drop, I, I, I think the consensus at the Satoshi event that I went to, and I had felt this going into it, that none of us had anticipated the downward price pressure that would come from merchant adoption that really just wasn't actually an adoption of Bitcoin, but really just a kind of unrelenting sell orders to get out of Bitcoin into into the national currency. And that that puts sort of nonstop uh, downward price pressure. And so in a, in a fascinating way, it's like the, the greater adoption under the current market conditions leads to a, a falling exchange ratio. I definitely had the sense that that was the consensus of almost everybody at the meeting that I that I went to. And that, that makes sense to me. And I must say, I personally had not anticipated it at all. Well, I think also in, in 2014, the, the truth is that the currency is still quite inflationary. It, the curve hasn't flipped over into the deflationary stage yet. The amount of Bitcoin issued per cycle is still pretty high. I mean, what is it? 3,600 Bitcoin at the moment per day. That's... Hmm. $850,000. And with, uh, you know, at the current price, it was $1.6 million a day being issued. And if you think about it from the perspective of the miners, since, since things are so competitive in the mining space and the profit margins are razor thin, that means that the vast majority of the mining reward is going to pay for electricity yeah. and has to be converted into fiat. So that's $1.6 exactly. to $800,000 of mining revenue being converted into fiat in order to pay for electricity at a time when right. adoption, you know, all, it doesn't even have to drop. It just has to plateau slightly and you simply can't absorb that, that cell pressure. Yeah, that makes sense to me that adoption is going more slowly. But now this is about to change, that the, the pace of Bitcoin creation is about to tip on, on the other side and we're going to enter into a kind of deflationary stage. Well, uh, certainly after 2016, first the price Because there's going to be another halving, are you saying? Because of the, yeah. So first of all, the price drop itself is, is already creating deflationary pressure. But beyond that, the halving in 2016 certainly will gradually tip the scales. If you assume that we continue with the adoption rates we have now. I think Barry Schilbert was asked recently by a journalist why the price of Bitcoin is going down and when he thought the price of Bitcoin would start going up again. And he gave the best answer I've heard so far. He said the price of Bitcoin is going down because there are more sellers than buyers and it will go up again when there are more buyers than sellers. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that is really the only correct answer, right? How much do you think a regime uncertainty has to do with it? I mean, this 2014 was the great year in which, you know, like every government in the world, you know, threatened to kind of cram Bitcoin into its existing um, monetary regulatory structures. Do you think that that had much an influence on just just making people uh, afraid? Well, my personal opinion is that the Bitcoin price is, for the most part, disconnected from fundamentals. I think that beyond the, the fundamentals of miners selling and merchants selling in order to convert to fiat and the kind of steady adoption rate, a lot of the rest of it is simply speculation without basics, without fundamentals in a very small liquidity market. Basically, people are doing technical and charting trading in a market that's so shallow that, the, that, that it creates a feedback loop. You know, essentially traders fighting each other over charts and inflection points and triangles and all kinds of extrapolations and models 
which have very little to do with the underlying news or the strength of the technology or adoption or any of the economic fundamentals. It's just penny stock casino for them. But of course, people always say to me all the time, how do you account for the low price of Bitcoin? Which always takes me by surprise and it makes me laugh too, because, you know, a world in which, you know, $240 per per magic internet money unit is low. <laughs> you know, I mean, nobody, you know, I got into the space when it was $12. And when it reached 30, you know, all the skeptics were screaming about how it's a, an insane bubble <clears throat> that was about to explode. So I, I just can't bring myself to think of, you know, $230, $240 Bitcoin as being a low price. Jeff, I'm wondering, what do you think about more centralization in mining is good, bad? Do you have any personal value judgments of what you think about the more centralized status of mining now as opposed to in the past? I don't really accept it. There's plenty of people out there that have sort of normative postulates about what industrial structure should look like. You know, there should be this many firms, there should be lots of firms, there should be one firm, there should be, you know, to me, it's it's just purely a matter of how the market shakes itself out. I don't know what the right structures are. Uh, the, The growing centralization doesn't really surprise me, but you know, I see. We, I think we see this in all markets. As long as you're free to enter, that's all that matters. It's those institutional considerations that are more important than the specific number of miners or the, uh, the structure of industry as such. Certainly, I don't think it poses any fundamental danger to Bitcoin. There is sort of a barrier to entry, though, if you want to start a new mining firm at this point. But it's a <clears throat> it's a cost barrier. Yeah, I think that's that's true in, in, in all in all sectors, all times, in all places. I mean, the leather gloves I'm I'm wearing right now, I could never really get into this market. I would certainly flop if I attempted to. But that doesn't mean that there are you know sort of legal barriers is what, what I'm worried about more than anything else. Cost barriers and I don't know. I think a Jeffrey Tucker clothing line would do would actually do really well. <laughs> I want to invest in that. <laughs> yeah, it would start with furs actually. I think <laughs> furs, three piece suits, leather gloves. <laughs> No, but you know, I, I guess I'm feeling like like right now. I think Andrea said this that this this is a great time for building towards the future. You know, we're now seeing come come online technologies that people were sort of doping out two years ago. You know, things like multisig, right. which sounded like science fiction two years ago, now you know conventional, and, and now we're hearing about you know these 2.0 ideas. Like, I, I'm very excited about this company Factum, which I've started to work with, and it, just so many really interesting things happening right now that we're going to see what they look like in 2017. I mean, you know, it's important for us to remember that when I speak in front of like normal people and normal crowds and this subject of Bitcoin comes up, people are still asking fundamental questions. You know, they, they just like, yeah. what, what, yeah, what is Most this? people I don't just, understand Bitcoin no, yet. they can't even begin. They're like, are you sure it's not a Ponzi scheme? How can you have money out of ones and zeros? What does this thing do? What does the innovation amount to? I mean, what makes it special? What, what are those prospects? So people are still asking these basic questions and, I, I still sound like you know some sort of uh, visitor from another planet when I bring up the subject in front of the, you know the, the bourgeoisie. It's so easy to when you live within the technology itself and you're and you're paying attention. You've bought the basic idea. You understand the the value of the innovation. You start looking at Bitcoin 2.0 and exciting developments and innovations that that can kind of start fleshing out that vision. It's easy to completely miss and underestimate how much sheer infrastructure, basic, basic, basic infrastructure needs to be built. I mean, 2014, we went from you know, maybe three or four well-run liquid exchanges to 30 to 50 liquid exchanges. But really, we're going to need to have 
hundreds of exchanges all around the world in all kinds of different currencies, hundreds and hundreds of different wallets and hundreds and hundreds of ATM companies doing tens of thousands of ATMs. And the amount of infrastructure that needs to be built just to continue to get adoption. And I, I've said this a, a few times before, before we even get to Bitcoin 2.0, a lot of the work, but also a lot of the profits and opportunity lies in building, you know, Bitcoin 0.5, the basic, basic stuff. Yeah, I think it's really true. I was just this morning playing around with this company called Purse.io. Have you played with that, Andreas? Yes, actually, they sell a lot of copies of my book and give a nice discount. It's a really interesting concept. It's um, really it does... brilliant. One thing that's beautiful about the market, about a decentralized market, is that you sort of can outsource all these creative ideas. And they emerge from places you never would have... I can't believe how wonderful it is. I mean, this is one company that figured out that there's a ton of people with credits on Amazon that, that would prefer the cash and learned how to put that together with buyers that wanted stuff on, on Amazon and use Bitcoin as the kind of currency and escrow to, to make the deal happen. It's like beautifully brilliant. And the interface itself is it's complicated, but a little bit, you know, it's like it's not ready for grandma, but it's pretty special and pretty wonderful. It's this kind of stuff, nobody could have anticipated this stuff even like a year ago, you know? Yeah, I like Perseo as a, as a concept and I certainly appreciate the book sales. So just as a disclaimer, I have to say that I was a mentor for Perseo during their initial incubation round at Plug and Play Tech Center in Sunnyvale. Were you really? When was that, Andreas? That was in 2013. The first round of Bitcoin startups uh, incubated uh, five startups oh. in the Plug and Play Tech Center. We're doing it again this year. There's only three startups in that group at the moment, but it's, it's one of the things I do kind of on the side, which is working with these startup incubators as a mentor for the startups. And it, it's fascinating because you get to see really early stage ideas, but also help young companies figure out how to best use the technology. That's really great. I, one thing that's, that's happening right now, I've noticed more and more in the Bitcoin space, is that rather than just somebody coming up with an idea and throwing it out there and starting a website and trying to get everybody to turn over the Bitcoins or whatever... To them, we're starting to see a little more accountability in the entrepreneurs and among the entrepreneurs in, in Bitcoin. For example, at the Miami conference, this North American Bitcoin conference, they had, I think it was about an, a 90 minute session where the heads of companies were allowed to make a, like a seven minute pitch for their company. And then they were grilled by six experts who were kind of independent who really asked the really tough questions. That was really interesting. You got to see who, you know, had the, substantive ideas versus just a sort of residential BS, you know? That session was, I think, the most fascinating Bitcoin session I've, I've been to. And I love to see this because this kind of accountability and it indicates that the sector is maturing in a way, don't you think? We're seeing two things, actually three things. We're seeing essentially the second wave of entrepreneurs. The first wave was a lot of the really, really early adopters but, you know, people who perhaps this type of company was the first company they've ever started. And so they started their entrepreneurial career with Bitcoin. We saw the second round where we're beginning to see people with some operational experience, perhaps have done startups before. There's a lot of people from completely outside the space, from other areas in finance, kind of seeing an opportunity here and jumping in, perhaps coming at it with, with some different values, which changes yep. the picture a tiny bit. 
And then I think also the the community has wisened up, uh, mm-hmm. has better ways of detecting the sharks and the scammers and the fraudsters. And now we're seeing kind of more things put in place for governance. So for example, now when a company goes crowdfunding or does a crowd sale, the idea of doing that without a multi-sig or without right. some kind of escrow capability will immediately call criticism upon them, yep. right? So that's great. A lot more scrutiny, a lot more sophistication among both buyers and sellers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's exactly right. Today's episode receives support from CryptoKit.com, the easiest and fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T.com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is class. That's C-L-A-S-S, class. You've got until the 7th of March to visit Let'sTalkBitcoin.com and Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. the altcoin market that much, Andreas? I'm interested in the altcoin innovation cauldron, if you like, uh, what's coming out of the altcoin space, but not the altcoin market per se. So I certainly follow what altcoins are doing in a number of different spaces. Altchains that are alternative applications, things like Factum and Electrum right. and things like that. The altcoins that implement specific niche features just to mention a few, you know, coins that are focused on anonymity or things like that. And I'm also very interested in consensus algorithm innovation. So all of the things around proof of stake and delegated proof of stake and proof of publishing and proof of this and proof of resource, all of those variations on the consensus algorithm. But that's very different from being interested in the market per se. I think at the moment... Bitcoin fills my risk appetite more than enough for me to go in and deal with um, much smaller and even more volatile altcoins. Ever since I went to this New Zealand conference, I follow the site BraveNewCoin.com, and I really, I really enjoy it. But just kind of watching the the competition between all the altcoins is a lot of fun. But I was really struck about what's happened over the last month with Darkcoin, and I kind of did some. I'm not sure I really fully understood Darkcoin, but I ended up reading a lot about it. And it's a really fascinating method they have of sort of coin mixing, you know, coming and going through two different public addresses that obfuscates original sources. And that's, that strikes me as, as you say, a really good niche market. But the timing of the rise of Darkcoin I found to be really interesting, just in light of you know, the prosecution of, of Ross and everything. And I wonder if there's a growing demand for that level of anonymity, you know, in the future. I think it was yeah. rising before that. Was it? Yeah. I remember hearing about Darkcoin about a year ago. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, he was like apprehended or whatever, but he hadn't been convicted yet. I do think there is like a demand for anonymity that isn't completely being served yet. I mean, Darkcoin yeah. is certainly a step and other mm-hmm. technologies 
But yeah, we need just like a really good, easy, better solution for that, I think. If you look at the space of alternative currencies as an evolutionary environment, an environment where the competition is aimed to find the solutions that have best fitness for the environment, that fit best within the context of the environment. If you look at the individual species, if you like, what it does is it gives you clues about the environment in which they operate, right? So just like Charles Darwin found a bird with a really long beak and he said, you know, okay, there must be a flower with a really, really long stem that corresponds to this. But when you look at things like Darkcoin, what it's telling you is what are the environmental pressures? What's happening in the environmental context of currencies that's causing this thing to rise out of this uh, innovation cauldron? And really what it's telling us is that as pressure from governments and regulators increases, what that does is it creates an arms race, an evolutionary arms race among the, the various currencies. In the end, Bitcoin turns out is the cuddly teddy bear of currencies. And there are plenty of much more venomous species out there right ready to fill a niche if the evolutionary pressures push it in that way. Can we say camouflage instead of venomous? Maybe chameleon or something like that. <laughs> sure, we could say camouflage, but, you know, nature finds ways to defend and attack. And, you know, it's not surprising. I think it's very similar to what we saw with the evolution from Napster to BitTorrent. And, you know, the music industry stomped on Napster and what it got was a succession of worse and worse and worse evolutions of that idea until it arrived at a, at a solution which was BitTorrent and some of the other similar things that were unbeatable by the music industry. And in the end, they lost half their industry to BitTorrent and the other half to Apple. The morale of that story is you should have made a deal with Napster. Turns out it was the best of choices. And I think the same thing happens with currencies. Well, bet you're saying best on- from the perspective of the music industry or from the perspective of the government people, but... Really, that's like a, that's a value judgment. And evolution well, doesn't have value judgments. It's just making something that's more adapted right. for the environment. Right, exactly. But it, but it speaks to compromise rather than engaging with, in an arms race against the decentralized innovation system because that's one you will lose. And so I, I think the same argument applies in currencies, which is heavy-handed regulation only spurs innovation and features that are counter to that. And it will actually end up evolving currencies even into, into niches that are even less regulatable. You could even say that Bitcoin was a response to the pressures that existed before Bitcoin in the banking system. Yep, it's a breakout species. It managed to ocu- fully occupy the niche that was opened up in 2008. Yeah, under the failure of fiat currencies and in light of the failure of many previous uh, attempts at digital currencies. So there was a lot of learning and experience that went into the emergence of uh, Bitcoin. I mean, I only know this in retrospect. I mean, at the time, I was a a great skeptic. Uh, I think I first heard about Bitcoin in 2010, and I completely dismissed it. And I I continued to for about the the next two and a half years. I, I started playing around with digital currencies in the early, early 90s, when David Chom started innovating around... Chomin binding and digital signatures to create currencies with this company, DigiCash. You know, Bitcoin, if you look at it from that perspective, is an evolution of an idea that really started in the mid-60s 
with the invention of asymmetric cryptography and the possibility of doing digital signatures in such a way. Even then, people started thinking, oh, great, how about we build currency with this? It just took many, many iterations to learn the lesson that if you have a centralized authority, you will get stomped on very, very quickly. Jeff, I guess I'm wondering, like, do you have any favorite historical parallels between the rise of Bitcoin over the last few years and, you know, what you see as similar situations that played out? Just other types of disruptive mm. technologies. So, what do you yeah, like to compare two, it to? Two, what, one, from, from an investment financial point of view, I like to look at the railroad industry as a great comparison because everybody was like, you know, constantly focuses on railroads as as a investment vehicle, you know, and so the headlines every day, you know, for, for 30 years are all about stock market scams and you know, booms and busts and wildcat banks starting, you know, on the, along the railroad lines and sending out lots of loans, getting into trouble. And it was just one scandal after another, you know, and everybody missing the bigger picture that transportation would be changed forever. But in terms of consumer adoption, I think the right analogy here is essentially electricity, actually. People were, were extremely skeptical of electricity when it first came along. And it was adopted by a sort of very edgy, extremely wealthy barons of the, of the Gilded Age first. And they put it in their homes and people thought they were crazy. It's like, why would you risk your life like that? Your home's probably going to blow up in, in fires. And, and a lot of them did, actually. <laughs> and, and, and many people just didn't see really what the point of it was. There's no necessary reason to break the network effects of all previous forms of lighting, essentially. It took decades and decades for it to enter into, into the mainstream until, you know, once it did, people stopped worrying about how it worked. And then governments got behind and said, you know, everybody must have electricity now. That's the most important thing we could ever do for the world is to have, have electricity all over the place. That was the theme of Lenin's Russia, after he took charge, was that he was, that was the number one thing that he was going to do for Russia was electrify the entire country, you know. But 30 years earlier, electricity was just, you know, the edgiest technology you can possibly ever imagine. Took a very progressive sort of mindset to adopt it and much less put it into your own home. And so I think those are probably the best analogies. But even then, I mean, in many ways, cryptocurrency is much more epic than that. I mean, you really have to sort of go back 6,000 years of human history to fully uh, comprehend the implications of a money that's you know purely private, purely decentralized, peer-to-peer technology that can work on a global basis, there's never been anything like it, you know, essentially ever. There's never been. It, it, what it does is it takes the best of the highest level of monetary system we ever had, say in the Renaissance period in Europe, and combines it with the best of the digital age and gives us something you know better than we ever could have imagined we could have had. And unlike, unlike the gold standard, unlike these other monetary systems that we've had, it can't be nationalized and destroyed by the government. That's just not going to happen. Or at least it's far more immune to those forces. So the, the potential for the unleashing of sort of pent-up prosperity and wealth all over the world is awesome to consider. Talk about the future. And if you had a young person today who's like, I want to work in Bitcoin or something like that, I want to start a business or I want to do something in the crypto world. What advice would you give to them? Like, what are you most excited about coming down the pipe? So that's a very serious question. I've, I've thought about this some because I know a lot of young people, by, by that I mean people who are sort of in their late teens or early 20s that are looking for the next big thing. They're, they're not interested in, in wasting, I think very wisely, wasting four, four years in college and $250,000 
for an uncertain result and really want to get into an, uh, into a commercial space right now, would I recommend Bitcoin as a possibility? I, you know, I, I, I'm not so sh- sure that the answer is obviously yes, but it certainly would be an exciting thing to do. Uh, you would certainly learn from it. I, I feel like we're, I, I guess lately I've been feeling like we're a little bit early in the space for that kind of mass rush into Bitcoin enterprises. But wow, if I were if I were if I were twenty years old right now and had a chance to to do something like an internship or apprenticeship or something with a Bitcoin startup, I think that would just be one of the most exciting things you could ever do. I think I would do it. Yeah. I mean, how could you ever be sure about something like that? Of course, but it's interesting to hear. I have to say too that you know I was just at the International Students for Liberty conference in, in Washington D.C. Now, this is a fascinating event. I hope that Andreas will come next year. I would love to figure out a way to get you there, maybe on behalf of Fee or something. I uh, never heard about it. So, yeah, let's start with that. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. Well, I'm just now, you know, I'm suddenly a light just went off in my, in my brain that this is definitely something we need to do for next year is get you the, to this conference. But there were about 1,800 students at this event that's just it's basically focused on on human liberty that's what that's what people are, are, are concerned about they're sick of the right they're sick of the left they're looking for another alternative but it's not a political conference these people are mostly interested in sort of activism in a social cultural and enterprising sense in a commercial sense so that's what they were there for and uh, not so much politics really the panels that were run by overtly political organizations about how you know they're going to like this candidate and get this tax reform passed or whatever you know, they, could, they couldn't even get half a dozen people to their panels. But uh, we had one Bitcoin session with Samuel Patterson, you know, the author of, I think, a couple of Bitcoin books that are out right now. There was standing room only in his sessions. And people were out in the hallway with like their ears, you know, cocked into the doorway and stuff like that. I mean, this is, this is what people care about. It was way more interesting to this young generation of of liberty-minded activists than, than any political outcomes. I think it was probably the most crowded se- apart from the session in which Edward Snowden himself showed up to speak to us on Skype, which was like hilarious if you think about it, you know? Here you have this guy who was... You on know, had Skype? To, yeah, so he had to, <laughs> he, he had to seek asylum in, in Russia, right, to, to escape... You know, the oh, US. I know, I'm just surprised he would use Skype. I mean, what, what was the setup there? <laughs> So he's, he's in Moscow, and this conference I went to was in the belly of the beast, right? It's right there in Washington, D.C., in a gigantic hotel. So there's like 1,800 students, and he shows up. And I don't know for sure that it was Skype, but he was on, maybe it was Oh, a yeah, okay. That's, that's what I meant, because Skype is not known for its privacy. And basically, he exposed a lot of stuff about Skype and software like it. So I would just be surprised if he actually used it. I heard when he was at South by Southwest last year, he routed himself through like seven nested Tor connections or something to do oh, his to do his talk. That makes sense. Yeah, but it was very very clear. I mean, it was like he was really there, and we were able to do a Q and A with this guy for for an hour in a, in a live Q and A session. In wow, that's awesome. In Washington D.C., you know, so that was that was amazing. I mean, you know, you look at that setup, and and it's and he was so articulate and so erudite and. And passionate and, and brilliant. I mean, it was, it was an element of tragedy, of course, that he's, you know, often, often Russia in an asylum. But on the other hand, it was, there's a real triumph in the fact that we could just, you know, engage him 
in real time as if he was right there speaking to us. And you know that the ruling class didn't want that to happen, but there's nothing they can do to stop it anymore. That was brilliant. But anyway, apart from that session, the Bitcoin session was, the I would say, the, the most well-attended breakout of the entire three-day conference. I mean, this is what people care about. They're very desperately interested in learning about it. They see that it's a, a new world. The other thing is I think Bitcoin inspires these young people because it's a kind of answer to many of the world's problems that doesn't come about through legislation or protests or lobbying or through some elite think tank, uh, bureaucrats in Washington or anything. It really represents a kind of spontaneous grassroots emergence of a, of a solution to the world's problems that you know, doesn't come from the elites. And I think that's inspiring, not just because it's Bitcoin, but also because of what it implies about the future. What it suggests is that there really is hope and that this oh. can come from within, within all of us. And because of what we do, that's an amazing thing. That's beautiful. And I love that note to end on. I just want to uh, thank you, Jeffrey, for joining us here on Let's What's Talk Bitcoin pleasure. today. Just tell our audience real quickly a little bit about what you do at Liberty.me and where they can find you online. Yeah, sure. So you can head over to Liberty.me. We've got a ridiculous special right now. I think it's a month free and you pay $5 a month. We've got a huge What network. is it? What is Liberty.me well, for people who don't social, know? Well, mostly, at least on the face of it, it's a social network. And, and that's fun. You get to know people. Uh, we're also content providers. So we have tons of, of, of books and uh, guides to, to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency that you can download and discuss on the forums ongoing chat, nightly classes, that sort of thing. What I like about it, you know, most personally, is that every member gets a publishing space that's really beautiful and gives you a, a place to write and, and speak your mind and get in front of a very large audience with your ideas. So that's all the things we do. We, we wrap all this up in one little package and say, here's your very large, actually, a global liberty community where you can, you can live and, and love and, and, and be happy. That's what liberty.me is all about. I also do a lot of work for the Foundation for Economic Education. I'm so thrilled to say that Andreas Antonopoulos is now doing writing for us. He has a just a, a, a short but like frighteningly brilliant article that appeared two days ago, or just yesterday, I guess, on fee.org about the Festival of the Commons. And it was just a beautiful metaphor you used. And I would encourage everybody to go to fee.org and read that article, along with about 70 years of archives of other cool stuff. Right on. The Foundation for Economic Education has been yeah. on my radar for a, over a decade plus. I think they hosted one of the very first economic seminars that I ever went to back when I was a teenager. So very cool organization. Well, Glad to hear you guys are both involved. Earlier this year, we were all sitting around saying, how can we, who's the world's smartest man that we can get to the most innovative pieces for our website? Who would that be? And one name came to mind. <laughs> Unfortunately, that person wasn't available. So 17 selections later, you arrived at me. That's <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. This episode receives support from CryptoKit.com, the easiest and fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser, and FoldingCoin.net, where you can use your spare CPU cycles to mine medicine, not hashes. Content for today's show is provided by Jeffrey, Stephanie, and Andreas. Music for today's show is provided by Jared Rubin with the LTB theme song and Daniel Kay's four-handed interpretation of the song C by Niles Fromm. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. If you have any questions or comments, head over to letstalkbitcoin.com. 
I'm on vacation until the beginning of March, so emails to Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com may go unanswered until then, but I'm receiving them. See you next time.